Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. What do you love about music? To begin with? Everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. In the early 70s, German art rockers combined psychedelia with the first electronic instruments to create a cosmic sound known as krautrock. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Kott. We dissect the krautrock genre and explore its incredible influence, setting the template for countless rock bands and paving the way for electronic dance music and hip-hop. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and uh, later on in the show, we're going to dig deep into the influential German art rock genre known as Krautrock. Late 60s, early 70s, these German innovators laid the foundation for several genres of music, Jim. Much of modern music, yes. Everything from independent rock music to hip-hop and techno, we're going to explore where that all came from. But first, we have some music news. Greg, you wrote about it this week in the Chicago Tribune, a fascinating story. Thanks, Jim. Uh, Yes, indeed. Big news on the net neutrality front, uh, which means it's going to be news that affects everyone who loves music, who makes music. Uh, Pretty much anyone who does business online is going to be affected by what is happening at the Federal Communications Commission right now. There's a new chairman appointed by Donald Trump, a Republican named Ajit Pai. What is feared is that Mr. Pai may lead a shakeup, an end to the net neutrality laws that uh, regulate the internet service providers. Bring people back up to speed. What's involved? Well, net neutrality is this concept, and it's been an issue in Washington for over a decade now, ever since the internet really became a thing uh, for distributing intellectual property. Music, Um, movies. Exactly. Um, It's basically saying that the internet should be equally accessible and open to everyone, from the smallest entities to the largest companies. And the fear is that if there wasn't a concept like net neutrality, these big users, these uh, these major companies, the Verizons of the world, the Netflix, the Amazons, will be able to pay to play, so to speak. They will be able to uh, acquire faster speeds and and broader access, and in other words, squash the little guys. In other right. So, know, so the concept of net neutrality is that Chance the Rapper mm-hmm. or Run the Jewels, two very successful artists right. who've released records on their own from their own websites, uh, should have as much power on the net, access to as much uh, distribution power as as Sony Music. Exactly. And it, it's the whole idea that an internet service provider should be a gateway to the internet rather than a gatekeeper mm. saying who gets better access than somebody else. And uh, Pi made some controversial comments a few weeks ago as a prelude to this appointment. Uh, he's already on record saying that he wants to, quote, fire up the weed whacker and remove those rules that are holding back investment, innovation, and creation. And a lot of people are interpreting that because he has been a a critic of the net neutrality rules uh, that are out there, the regulations that are restricting the Internet service providers. So the idea is that if net neutrality goes out the window, uh, this level playing field will no longer be level anymore. 
and we'll essentially have a, a system that resembles the 20th century music industry in a way, this narrow pipeline of content being controlled by a few multinational corporations, you know, the Clear Channels and the Sonys, except they're now named Netflix and Verizon and Amazon. But the record company executives on these small-time labels, you know, calling them executives is a little highfalutin. Yeah, yeah, it's a guy in these his bedroom. regular guys and gals who are running these labels. Yeah. They're fearful of what the strike down of net neutrality will do uh, to their future on this business. Well, Greg, uh, also causing some concern is a report done recently by The Hill, the newspaper that covers Congress, saying that as part of the new Trump administration's desire to eliminate $10.5 trillion in federal spending over the next decade, they are looking once again at cutting the National Endowment for the Arts. This is a drip, a little drip of water in the giant ocean of federal spending. It's a mere $150 million budget annually. Cost to Americans, 46 cents, right, from their tax dollar. You know, what are we talking about in terms of NEA funding in music, Greg? There was a fine piece in Pitchfork by Mark Hogan, who's been on our show, who notes that thousands of grants go to orchestras, jazz combos, operas, chamber music. Uh, he pointed out that the video last year of David Bowie talking about working with Lou Reed, both of those artists gone now. That was part of an NEA-funded digital archive. Esperanza Spalding, recently a guest on our show, got a grant for a performance from the Barishnikov Arts Center in Manhattan. Uh, not a lot of money, but sometimes it's the difference that makes these events uh, possible or not. And apparently, uh, Trump administration has it in its crosshairs to cut the National Endowment for the Arts. This goes back to the early 90s. The culture wars is what it's come to be called. When people like Senator Jesse Helms were offended that uh, avant-garde, sometimes intentionally controversial artists like the photographer Robert Maplethorpe and the performance artist Karen Finley got some national funding. Again, though, this, this National Endowment for the Arts, it's 0.004% of the federal budget. These are both stories, obviously, that we're going to have to stay on. Today on Sound Opinions, we are doing a show we've been meaning to get to for quite some time, a genre dissection of the sound known as Krautrock. Narrowly defined, it was a movement in the very late 60s and early 70s in Germany combining traditional rock and roll with new electronic experimentation and psychedelic exploration. We're talking really important bands here, like Kraftwerk and Can and Noi. And Greg, I don't think you could overstate the influence of these and other Krautrock groups on music worldwide. You are not kidding, Jim. Krautrock's been referenced by indie rock scenes for decades. Uh, you know, every band from My Bloody Valentine to Wilco's got a little Krautrock in there. Yeah. And uh, the roots of all electronic dance music basically can be traced back to this genre. So we're going to take a deep look at the history of the genre and its long-lasting effect on music. Let's start with that name itself, Krautrock. It is offensive uh, <laughs> if you are German, I would assume, right? It was actually coined by the English music press. The Germans uh, in the period we're talking about preferred kosmische Musik, cosmic music. If you think about the great psychedelic explosions in the U.S. 
and the UK. 1966, 67 is when it goes mainstream, the summer of love. 68 is when it starts to be sort of a bad trip, right? The riots in Chicago at the Democratic National Convention and uh, the riots in France, politically motivated. The psychedelic moment got to Germany a little bit later. It only really started in 1968, as opposed to, to the US and the UK. It was two or three years into it by that point. And the Germans, of course, put their own twist on things. This is a unique moment in German history. The new generation, mostly born post-World War II, is struggling for identity, living with the, the, the massive guilt and horrible knowledge of what had happened in the 40s in their country, looking for an alternative way to express themselves, but also one that is not too reliant on what's happening in the U.S. and the U.K. I mean, we want to be different, right? Everybody wants to be different. There's a new generation of, of artists across all artistic boundaries that are inventing uh, a new world in Germany, uh, taking their inspiration from psychedelic drugs. You have it in visual arts, uh, performance arts. Joseph Boys, the performance artist. Yeah, 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 yeah. In the film world, uh, Fassbinder and Wim Wenders, and of course Werner Herzog. Wenn ich agiere, will, dass die Vögel tot von den Bäumen fallen. And then you have these cosmic music bands. There was this manifesto that uh, a bunch of German film uh, makers came out with in 62, just as this uh, prelude of this youth revolution was occurring in Germany. The old cinema is dead. We believe in the new cinema. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the German art rockers, which are really what Krautrock is, Jim, is German art rock, uh, they embraced that notion that all the old music is dead. We want to start something new. And when they meant old music, they were talking about even the stuff that was occurring that year in guitar-based rock and roll. They wanted to start over again. Now, Greg, as often happens with scenes uh, when, when the press labels them with a name, these bands didn't actually have a lot in common. Some were very studious, professorial uh, tinkerers with electronic instruments. Others were freaky hippies running around naked in the woods. Some living in communes, some living in laboratories. Uh, some were very rock and roll, and some were new agey. Some were psychedelic, exploring drugs, and some, uh, you know, seemed like mathematics professors. Now, that having been said, they do have certain things in common. They tended to work with two of the same producers, Dieter Dirks or Conrad Plank, an interesting guy who had uh, recorded Marlena Dietrich and Duke Ellington. There were two labels in Germany, Brain and Ore, that put many of them out, and there were some similar touchstones. They were influenced a lot by the minimal classical musicians, Terry Riley, Lamont Young, and especially their fellow German, Karl Heinz Stockhausen. He was an electronic innovator, a purveyor of music concrete, the sound of industry and the street as music. And they worship this American band, 
the Velvet Underground. We thought the best way to give our listeners an overview of Krautrock, the moment, the music, the different bands, is, is to look at some of the bands in depth. And, you know, quite frankly, not only is Kraftwerk the most important band in the Krautrock scene, but one of the, you know, we would both say one of the most important bands in rock and roll history, period. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, people have called them the Beatles of uh, electronic music. Uh, they did for the, for the synthesizer what Chuck Berry did for the guitar. I mean, they were that essential as a foundational element for this style of music that has flourished all, all around the world for uh, subsequent decades. Kraftwerk was primarily the project of two classical music students, Ralph Hooter and Florian Schneider. In 1970, they built a studio tucked in the back of an old train station in Dusseldorf. And the name of the studio? Kling Klang. Kling Klang. Yes. I love it. I mean, that was the sound they wanted to, yes. to make. They wanted to, they wanted to, they called romantic realism. The romance uh, movement in classical music, they were... Uh, referencing these old folk songs that the German music had uh, been proffering for centuries and combining it with this new instrumentation and the new sound, the industrial Germany, the, the sound of the Autobahn, the sound of the of the railroad, the sound of the jets taking off. Well, they wanted to combine it into their music. I think all but the real Kraftwerk superfans, and you and I are two of those, uh, don't realize that the band put out a couple of albums that are really pretty ordinary right. at first. Initially, there's like flute and, and art rock. It's almost a little Jethro Tullish. <laughs> the first two Kraftwerk albums and what they'd been before that organization. What would you say the classic Kraftwerk albums are, where they find their voice? Well, you know, Autobahn was obviously the breakthrough record, highlighted by this sidelong title track, which they, you know, tongue-in-cheek said, you know, we were combining the Beach Boys with this new sound that we were we were coming up with. Well, the chorus is far and far and far and under Autobahn, which is, in Germany, it's driving, driving, driving on the Autobahn, uh, but but in English, it's, it sounds like fun, fun, fun on right, the Autobahn, right. which sounds like the Beach Boys. Fun, fun. So there was this combination of a, a sort of a tongue-in-cheek, almost bubblegum element mm -hmm. with this exotic sound. And apparently, you know, I was talking to 
the members of the group at, at various points in their career talking about the response from the audience uh, when they would perform this music live for the first time. And people were hearing these sounds coming out of these massive speakers, and they didn't know how to respond. They would sit there with their mouths hanging open because it was so awesome. And how could they be making this sound from these machines? Uh, it was it was really dramatic, it was really powerful, and it was very new. Uh, no one had seen anything quite like it. You know, this whole idea of, of android culture, yeah. you know, that you saw in the blockbuster movies of, of the 80s Blade in Runner, Hollywood, yeah. Blade Runner, etc. It all starts with this group, <laughs> and the idea that, hey, we're guys, but we're also these robots, too. Right. Well, the it, wonderful pop album, The Man Machine, mm -hmm. you know, Hooter said to me, we are the men, we are the machine, the machines play us, we play the machines. Where, where does humanity end and the machinery take over? What's surprising to me about that music, Jim, is out of these icy mechanical sounds, they got an incredible amount of warmth out of it. It is very warm sounding, almost soothing, deceptively soothing music at times. Beautiful music, classically oriented in, in many ways, and yet it's made by these machines. From Autobahn through Trans-Europe Express, The Man Machine, Computer World, those records are all must-own for any adventurous rock fan. After a short break, we'll continue our krautrock genre dissection with the hypnotic motorique beat of the band Noi. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. My partner is Jim DeRigatis, and today we're discussing the German art rock genre known as Krautrock. As we said, Jim, the Krautrock bands took what was going on in the U.S. and the U.K. with psychedelic music and made it their own. For Kraftwerk, that involved introducing synthesizers and industrial sounds. Another influential band that built off the mechanical feeling was Neu. That group began as a collaboration between Kraftwerk's Florian Schneider, as well as drummer Klaus Dinger and guitarist Michael Roter. And that band doesn't really take off. Dinger and Rother continue as a duo as Neu, N-E-U, exclamation point, new. I think, though, that time together gave them uh, a similar appreciation for a kind of driving rhythm that the Germans called motorique. It's a drumbeat. Hypnotic. Um, it's a hypnotic. It is meant to convey the sound of speeding in the dark of the night down the Autobahn, where there is no speed limit. You know, at that point in the 60s and 70s Germany, you could drive as fast as you wanted on these wonderful, straight, uh, you know, German, beautifully paved <laughs> roads through the green hills. You know, it's the middle of the night. All you see is that white line coming at you, uh, illuminated by the spotlights of your car, the headlights of your car, you know, right, really quick, uh, straightforward 4-4. It's a rhythm that you hear, to, to some extent, in all of the Krautrock bands. Mm-hmm. We uh, had Michael Rother on the show. He talked about recording Noise classic, uh, masterpiece of the Motorique beat, Hallow Gallo. Well, I think the source was our life experience as Kraftwerk. So when Klaus and I started uh, recording the no- the first Neu album, it was this idea of one track in E, <laughs> the favorite um, harmony for guitarists, at least for me. And um, I played guitar and Klaus played the drums. So that was the backing track, the backing tracks. And we just went on for maybe 11 minutes and then um, I went into the recording room, added another melody, and Klaus played some quack, quack, quack guitar. <laughs> and then Connie turned around the tape, and that suddenly that changed it completely because um, this, I love backwards music, backward slowed down music, especially, and backwards sounding music. And that inspired me to respond to that, react to that uh, new sound, that new situation. And so when the tape was turned around again, the result was that orchestra of guitars. I think Hello Gallo is uh, one a very good example because there's nothing in that song that could be taken away. You know, it's really stripped down and if you if one of those elements was missing, I guess the whole track would fall apart. And maybe that's uh, one of the reasons why it works so well, the magic. I guess there's really so much that cannot be explained. I'm just talking about how the instruments were added, but 
it doesn't really explain the magic, the feeling you get. That's Michael Rother talking about noise, hallow gallo, and the motoric beat uh, on Sound Opinions in the past. It was a treat to have him. Greg, I think after Kraftwerk and Noi, uh, the most important band in the Kraut Rock movement is Can. I know you would agree. Well, the strangest one, too, in some ways, right? Oh, the stories. The Can <laughs> stories are just wonderful. These individuals came together in Cologne in 1968. These guys rent a castle. Apparently, <laughs> in 68, in Germany, you could do things like rent an empty castle <laughs> called Schloss Norwenich. And they uh, begin to jam, and they have only a two-track recorder, and everything gets recorded. Their, their composition style they call instant composition. It's an interesting uh, group of folks. Holger Zuke uh, begins by playing the French horn, and he had studied composition under Stockhausen. Uh, there's a young guitarist, Michael Caroli, who had been a student of Holger Zuke. And there's the most uh, musical of the musicians, Ermin Schmidt, who's the keyboardist. And we have to mention an incredible drummer named Yaki Liebeseit, who just died on January 22nd, Greg, at the age of 78. What was special about this guy is that he grew up as an incredibly virtuosic jazz musician, but who understood the primal pulse of rock and roll better than anyone, I think, uh, this side of Maureen Tucker of the Velvet Underground. Someone who could play with symphonic chops and yet chose to do these simple, repetitive loops that sometimes could go on for 20, 30, 40 minutes when Can was in its full sonic assault. You know, you say jam and you think Grateful Dead and Indulgence and jam band scene. You know, Can, when it jams, never loses that primal Velvet Underground beat. They're the most Velvet Underground influenced of any of the Krautrock bands, and there is a pulse there. I think that's a central point that you made there, and a key point that maybe unites all these bands is that sort of appreciation for that driving rhythm. Uh, they all took it from different angles, but there was never a sense like, okay, it's completely falling apart. There was always a sense of forward propulsion there, it seemed like to me. Now, the thing about Can is they have two really unlikely vocalists in the early days on their four best albums. The first vocalist they pair up with is an African-American named Malcolm Mooney. He's bumming around Germany, right? He's just hanging out on the German art scene. He's a sculptor. He's a little bit eccentric. He winds up getting tapped by Can to, like, improvise uh, these words, which seem to be coming from a different dimension <laughs> when they record their first album in 1969. It's called Monster Movie. You Do Right and Father Cannot Yell are two masterful examples of, you know, people wonder where else could the Velvet Underground have gone after Sister Ray? I'll tell you where. Mm. Cans, uh, Father Cannot Yell, and You Do Right. Right. <laughs> 
screaming, I am mother, woman screaming, I am fertile, and the father, he hasn't been born yet, he hasn't been born yet. All has been forgotten, and the plastic turns to rotten rays and smells. While pointing to the deathly beautiful, mother there in pain creating, woman who just lies there waiting, and the father, he hasn't been born yet. Malcolm Mooney has some mental problems, though, and he leaves the band in sort of a Sid Barrett sort of way, can flounders for a bit, and then they find another singer. They are walking down the street one day, and there is a Japanese man with very long hair who was also just bumming around Europe, and he's busking on the corner, playing badly an acoustic guitar and worshiping the sun. And uh, uh, Holger Zuke says to the others in the band, there is our next singer. And indeed it was. Damo Suzuki becomes the second singer in Cannes. And they make three more masterful albums, Tago Mago, Ige Bamyasi, and Future Days. Now, Can thought a lot about what it did. Any music that has no energy, they said, we throw to our starving eraser heads, <laughs> right? And they, they were fond of these pronouncements. We make music for our machines, and our machines like to listen, mm-hmm. right? But as I said, there's a real kind of, kind of organic pulse in this music. Um, there's a lot of reference to psychedelic drugs. There's a lot of reference to magic. Tago Mago is the band's magic album, and a lot of it is inspired by Aleister Crowley. Of course, the song Mushroom is a tribute to those drugs. You know, I thought like a brother band in some ways to Can was Faust. They had an equally chaotic sort of approach to the music and, and, and ended up with making some wonderful albums that were very poorly understood in their time. I think Can actually found a pretty solid following uh, in the 70s at, at a certain point. Faust was just never fully understood. They made four albums from 1971 to 73, and you know, you talk about Can renting a castle. These guys did the farmhouse out in the woods, right? Yeah. You know, there was something about isolation with these groups. They preferred not to be polluted by everything else that was going on in popular music or culture at the time. They wanted to do their own thing, and their greatest influences in many ways were each other. And that was very much the case with Faust. One of the members of the group was this uh, French expatriate, Jean Perron. And he would say that they would go to this farmhouse and they were doing a lot of drugs, of course. But at the same time, he also said that there was a lot of experiments that we would conduct. Like we would go up on the rooftop and we would just shout ourselves silly 
until we had no energy left. Or we would go out in the yard and dig a bunch of holes. And this would create this energy that they would bring into this music. And you're just shaking your head listening to this. Yeah. What is this man going on about? Well, and everything was recorded. Everything. Everything The hole was digging, recorded. the shouting on the rooftop. So there was a certain amount of, of chaos in the music, but the, the Faust tapes, which were essentially a document of that farmhouse era, are actually relatively coherent. The music jumps around a lot, but there's a lot of beautiful music tucked within that. And they went from this period into working with, uh, with Tony Conrad. You had mentioned the Velvet Underground as a huge influence, and Conrad, in turn, was a huge influence on the Velvets. Conrad was his violinist. He worked with John Cale, future uh, Velvets member, Lamont Young, and Angus McLeese from 62 through 65 uh, on what became the groundwork for what became known as dream music. And I think Faust took a lot of cues from that music. Conrad wandered into their orbit in the 70s, and Conrad laid down a bunch of tracks over which they, in turn, improvised uh, that, to me, really get to the heart of the brave and completely outside-the-margins experimentation that was a key to this whole scene, Jim. I think the other great Krautrock band is Amon Duel 2. I say that Amon Duel 2 is important because I think the albums really stand up uh, and, and it begins to pave the way where the genre lines blur between Krautrock and space rock. Very spacey, interstellar overdrive, Pink Floyd-inspired rock and roll. Amon Duel starts as a German political art commune outside of Munich. The part that mainly want to be a commune running around naked outside of Munich and the part that want to be a more serious band, they split. And so you have Amon Duel, which has a couple of records out there which are more or less unlistenable. And then Amon Duel 2, which is, is, is a pretty legitimate band, especially the first couple of albums. Phallus Day in 69, Yeti in 1970, Dance of the Lemmings in 1971. They stand, I think, the test of time, as most of the this music does. Greg, the list of fascinating kraut rock bands goes on and on. I recently featured Tangerine Dream as a Desert Island jukebox pick. They have some great uh, electronic synth-heavy soundtracks. They also have a lot of dross in their catalog. I mean, there's something, more than 100 albums. <laughs> some of them are great, wonderfully hypnotic and cinematic, and some of them are just very new-age ethereal. 
Ashraf Temple, band that always kind of interested me. Uh, they made a record with Timothy Leary. Mm-hmm. You know, Leary yeah. had to flee the United States <laughs> after he was arrested for spreading the psychedelic gospel in the U.S. He winds up living in Switzerland, and Ashra Temple records with him live. Leary's just kind of stoned and, and muttering over a blues riff. Popol Vuh is a more interesting band, a lot of collaboration with Herzog. They did the soundtracks for Nosferatu, Fitzcarraldo, and Aguirre. Uh, my favorite Popol Vuh album is uh, Ende Garten Pharos, uh, In the Garden of Pharaoh. The influence of this music, I think, is uh, underappreciated. Uh, I don't think there anything that has to do with electronic music from the last three or four decades probably has its tentacles reaching back to German art rock, whether it knows it or not, kraut rock, as we've been discussing here. I mean, you talk about uh, the synth pop of Depeche Mode and Gary Newman. That's an easy get, right? You, know, yeah. you can understand the direct line there from what was going on in the 70s in Germany to this uh, more popular art form that artists like Depeche Mode and Gary Newman created in the 80s. You know, those Berlin-based albums uh, that you and I love so much, the Bowie-Brian Eno collaborations, were drawing a lot from this music. They were made in Germany for a reason. And contemporary rock bands. I mean, here's where this rhythmic element that we've been talking about that's been a thread through all this really comes through, you know, particularly bands like Noi and Can, uh, that insistent pulse. You can hear it in bands like Stereo Lab. My Bloody Valentine or Sonic Youth, uh, Queens of the Stone Age were huge yeah. fans of, of this particular sound. You know, you look at the so-called post-rock movement. Tortoise. Uh, Tortoise, uh, example one. They, They loved these records. Go back to Dream Pop, the, the Cocteau Twins, huge influence on their sound. Wilco's done its uh, heavy kraut rock phase. You know, just setting aside rock music, I mean, kraut rock still had a major influence on dance music, of all things. I mean, you don't expect these professorial-looking dudes from Germany yeah. to be influencing American underground dance music, but that's exactly what it did. You, you look at Detroit techno, and I remember talking to the founders of that genre of music, people like Derek May and Kevin Saunderson and Juan Atkins, and they sang the praises of, of German art rock, kraut rock. Derek May once described Detroit techno as the sound of George Clinton and Kraftwerk stuck in an elevator. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and of course, Frankie Knuckles at, at the warehouse, the birthplace of house music in Chicago. 
Yes, he was playing uh, Kraftwerk's Trans Europe Express. It was one of the highlights of the evening. You were he was trancing out all these dancers out there. Then all the lights would go out, and he would play the sound of this train, this trans yeah. the train <laughs> in Trans Europe Express bulleting through the club, and people would be screaming, thinking it was a real train inside the club. No, Euro Disco, Donna Summer's um, uh, collaborations with Giorgio Moroder on, on tracks like I Feel Love, you know, couldn't have been possible without the groundwork being laid by Krautrock. And then ambient techno, uh, late 80s, early 90s, you know, the work of groups like Orbital and Aphex Twin, among countless others, the Orb. heavily influenced by what was going on in Germany at the time. Now, Krautrock also was a key influence on the birth of hip-hop. When we come back, we'll do a sample platter looking at how the early hip-hop producers transformed these German art rock sounds into classic hip-hop singles and samples. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And from time to time on the show, Greg, we do a sample platter segment, uh, a new feature we've recently been indulging in, where we look at a recent hit that is driven by a sample of some music from the past. We've done Beyonce. We've done Drake. It's a lot of fun, and I think it's illuminating to see how artists create something new from something old. We're going to do something a little different with this week's sample platter. We want to look at how Krautrock has been used by hip-hop, often by some of the key innovators in this genre. I think most people know that 1982's breakthrough hip-hop single, Planet Rock, by Africa Bombada and Soul Sonic Force, uh, was driven by the main melody line of Kraftwerk's Trans-Europe Express.
It's a great hook. Bombada built a great song that started arguably one of the key tracks that started all of hip hop. Not only though did Planet Rock draw from Trans Europe Express, it also was driven by the groove of Kraftwerk's Numbers, which was a tune from Computer World. There's no denying the influence that Pombada had with that song and those samples. He has been in the news lately for allegations of sexual misconduct, uh, sadly. But the music lives on, of course. Another group on the East Coast that drew from Kraftwerk uh, very influentially is the Fearless Four. They were connected to Curtis Blow, old-school hip-hop electro outfit from Harlem, uh, on their record, Rockin' It. They took the main sequenced synthesizer line from The Man Machine by Kraftwerk. I got a theory as a drummer about why many hip-hop musicians uh, love these German grooves. I think that while they were mechanical and industrial and evoking the sounds, the noises of New York City streets and the subway trains, right, um, there also was a soulfulness. There was a humanity in the machines, the synthesizers and sequencers, and certainly in the live drumming that hip-hop musicians related to. Now, one of the few things that musicians from East Coast and West Coast agreed on was a love of these funky Germans. So we see the girl group J.J. Fad in 1988 for their hit Supersonic. Supersonic. They're recording for Ruthless Records, NWA's label, right? They liberally lift elements of numbers as well, again, from Computer World. In 1984, Egyptian Lover put out the record Egypt, Egypt. And the title track of that album sampled a record that had come out a year before, Tour de France by Kraftwerk, 1983 release, uh, wherein Ralph Hooter, the driving force from the beginning of Kraftwerk, uh, he was an avid bicycler, Greg. He liked to do little excursions like biking over the Alps and biking all the way across Europe. And he would record the sound of his breath during these bike rides and the pedals. And he would build tracks on the sound of the man on the bicycle. Somehow that appealed to Egyptian Lover, and he samples it for the lead track of Egypt, Egypt in 84. Rapwork is not the only kraut rock band that has been sampled by hip hoppers.
Kanye, incredible producer with a golden ear, sampled Sing Swan Song by Can for Drunk and Hot Girls uh, from 2007's Graduation. Drunk and Hot Girls Completely different context for the song, different feel, different groove, but something, and again, as a drummer, I will say that it's Yaki Lipizite's uh, very soulful yet also mechanical groove that inspired Kanye. This is the man most famous, Kanye West, for using uh, dusty soul samples from the early days of Chicago soul and house music. He heard soul in these Germans. Up in the club, look at here what we got, some And we want to hear from you. What do you think of Krautrock, and where do you hear the influence of Krautrock and music today? Leave us a message on our hotline at 888-859-1800, or you can connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. That is a little bit of the Allman Brothers. Greg, we lost another great musician from the 60s and 70s, co-founder of the Allman Brothers band, Butch Trucks, a fine drummer, died on January 25th at the age of 69. Uh, We also, though, want to talk about another loss, Maggie Roche. Yes, Maggie Roach, the co-founder, singer, guitarist, and the main songwriter in the Roaches, uh, that trio of sisters out of New Jersey. She died on January 21st at the age of 65. The Roaches were uh, a a wonderful avant-folk group is the best way I can describe them in the 70s. They didn't sound like anybody else. The word quirky usually preceded any reference to to this group, Uh, but they were wonderful. Um, So wonderful, in fact, that Robert Fripp, the great mm-hmm. guitars from King Crimson wanted to produce their early albums and did a great job with them. He, you know, and when I talked to the sisters about what Fripp brought to the table, he said he was one of the few guys in the industry with actual clout who let us be ourselves. Yeah. He basically said, you need to stay away from these women. Let them do their thing because they're great. Well, you've paid tribute in the past with a Desert Island jukebox uh, and, and eloquently stated, you know, for people who don't know the Roaches, why were they important? Well, uh, to me, they were represented a, a side of, of so-called folk music and harmony singing uh, that fit right in with what was going on in the punk and post-punk eras. I mean, you could play them alongside some of those punk records coming out of New York City and feel like they're of a piece with this. Yeah. They don't sound exactly like any of these groups, but the sensibility is definitely of a piece. And I think the reason for that is Maggie Roach. Uh, her songs, to me, defined a 70s version of feminism as well as any artist who was writing songs in that era. And uh, one of Maggie's greatest songs uh, occurred on on the first album. Uh, It's a song called The Married Men. And on its surface, you go, well, what does this song have to do with feminism? It sounds almost exactly the opposite. It's about, you know, this cheating husband, and he's got the other woman, Mm. and, you know, then he eventually is going to end this fling and go back to his wife. 
and the other woman is usually never named, right? You mm-hmm. know, we don't know who she is. Well, Maggie Roach gave her an identity in The Married Men. She says, this is what this woman is going through. This is who she is. You may think of her as a victim or a bimbo or an abused person, and she's none of the above. She actually knows what she's doing. She's going through this relationship. She's not passing moral judgment on her. She's just saying, this is how it is, folks. Sometimes these relationships happen, and it's not like somebody is an unnamed victim. It's maybe they're doing it for their own reasons. There's a line, in, a couple of lines in the song, The Married Men, I know that they don't like me, but I am just like them, picking a crazy apple off a stem. Mm. And it's kind of this subversive feminist anthem. Yeah. And, and Maggie Roach wrote a bunch of them. Here's The Married Men from the Roaches, as written by Maggie Roach on Sound Opinions. That was The Married Men, written by Maggie Roach, recorded originally by The Roaches. Maggie Roach, now dead at the age of 65. Greg, uh, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, next week we have another fine singer on the show, speaking of Maggie Roach, uh, Shirley Collins, the great voice of English folk rock in the 60s and 70s, will be on our show. Greg, we have to thank our producers, Brendan Banasak, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and Ayana Contreras. Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hey, guys, this is Chris from Winston-Salem, and uh, I'm listening to your Apologies episode, and you've totally nailed two of my favorite uh, genres of music, both Apologies songs and breakup songs. So I got a quick twofer for you of songs apologizing for not being sad enough. Uh, one is Carl Perkins' I'm Sorry, I'm Not Sorry. It's a great tongue-in-cheek breakup song about being relieved that the relationship's over. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry.
And the other is Justin Towns Earls. Uh, nothing's going to change the way you feel about me now. It's a shame, babe. Nothing that you could do. Things change, babe. Such as my feelings for you. Kind of a, a wonderfully cruel song about um, not feeling bad that you've broken someone's heart. So, hope you enjoy those picks um, and love the show. Hi, my name is Sadie. I'm calling from Abu Dhabi in the UAE, and I would like to suggest as an apology song. Vic Chestnuts, kick my ass. I'm so sorry you had to kick my ass. You said I ruined your life. I didn't mean to do that. Like all of his music, it is warped, but it is sincere, it is heartfelt, and it can apply to, I think, everyone. Everyone's had a situation where they hurt someone accidentally, even though they were uh, close to that person. And I think it is an excellent apology song. Hi, so I'm listening to Sound Opinions. You had someone come on and say that the Rolling Stones said, I'm going to throw dead flowers on your grave. And that's not how the song goes. The song says, you can send me dead flowers every morning. Send me dead flowers by mail. Send me dead flowers to my wedding. And I won't forget to put roses on your grave. So it's this apology thing that you have going on tonight. And you completely got Mick Jagger's lyrics wrong. And I think you need to retract that. But that's not what the song is about. John from glorious Orangeville, Illinois, and I was just listening to a review of the new Flaming Lips, Ugly Blockly, or whatever the name of the title is, something unpronounceable, uh, and I am deeply disappointed by uh, Ugly Blockly. It was incoherent, and it was studio trickery, which takes away from their best album, which was Transmission. What a cool rock album that was that I played at 11 as often as possible, but Ogly Blogly or Flogly Nogly, whatever it is, was atrocious. So, shame, I like the lips. Thanks, have a great day, goodbye. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.